0: Amen. Thanks. My armor-bearer, crutch-bearer in every way. Thank you. Honey. Uh, Father, uh, give us good ears to hear, we pray. Um, help us to hear, uh, we, we ask this, Lord, because um, we can, apart from you, we can do nothing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I, uh, I wonder if you, you know when you will become a loving person. These are the kinds of questions that you contemplate when you're laid up for a little while. Um, for, for teenagers in here, that, or for young adults, it might, the question might be uh, more like, when, at what point later on will I become a loving person? Uh, if, if you're sort of in the midlife crisis mode as I am in, maybe it's, um, I thought I would have been a loving person by now, um, so I'm still not sure what, what, what needs to happen before I become a loving person. Perhaps if you're older than me, um, my, my, my boomer brothers and sisters, uh, the question might be more like, I, I'm still not loving yet. I'm not sure why. Um, I don't know. Uh, but the question stands before all of us. W- what obstacle is getting in the way of you becoming a loving person? I wonder if you have an answer to that. Not doing acts of love, right, different from becoming a loving person, which I think we all instinctively know is different. Uh, What obstacle stands in the way of of a church, a community becoming a loving community? At what point will Bridge become a loving community? I'm not suggesting that we're not, I'm not suggesting that all of you are not, but but we all instinctively have a sense that there's work to be done. Uh, Nikolai Gogol wrote uh, one of my favorite short stories called The Nose. Uh, it's a story about a Russian aristocrat who wakes up one morning to find that his nose has disappeared. And all that is there is just a flat piece of smooth skin. And uh, and the story is the process of him trying to track down his nose. And he goes about it in a very strange way. He he started, he asks somebody who works for him, have you seen my nose? I lost it. And of course he says, I, I haven't seen it. It was just there yesterday. And he takes to the streets and he starts to try and search for his nose. He's looking... To find where did my nose go, and suddenly he realizes, oh, I look really strange. So he starts walking and holding a handkerchief over his over his face, trying to cover up, and trying to pretend like he's sneezing. Um, and eventually, uh, he runs into his nose, and his nose is a is, is a military officer who's now achieved a higher rank than he has, and he's chatting with other dignitaries. And he's immediately, I'm going to rush over. I'm gonna, that nose. He's going to. He needs to come back to me. I need. And then suddenly he catches himself and realizes, I. How is that conversation going to go right in front of other people uh excuse me you're my nose you actually belong to me uh so he hesitates and then the nose gets away and he spends the rest of the story uh he goes to the newspaper and tries to put an ad out for a lost nose and of course they refuse him uh he he calls the police and tries to get them involved and and all the while he's doing these very ordinary like things that you would do if you lost your cat to find his nose and the whole time. He's he's trying to cover the fact that he has no nose. He's lost it. Um, By the end, of course, the nose miraculously uh, reappears. Um, And and, and the reason reason I I just recount that story to you is that what's striking about it is, is, as I said, the everydayness with which we cover up our shame and which we, we try to hide the fact that we know we're missing something. We, the everyday sort of daily routine things that we do, kind of trying to cover this part, this, this, this odd thing about us, this broken thing about us, and yet we continue to go through our day. And, and his, his dedication in the story, he's dedicated to hiding his shame no matter how painfully and obvious it is. Um, and so, every, so what happens is every interaction that he has in the story becomes an exercise of avoiding exposure Every relationship he has is trying to avoid exposure. So fear rules his life. The fear of being found out that he doesn't have a nose. Uh, One of the greatest obstacles to you becoming a loving person, the Bible identifies, is fear. Uh, it's, It's very difficult to love other people when you're preoccupied with holding a handkerchief over your nose and looking for something that's missing. Uh, you're trying to cover some blemish, blemish about you, and that kind of takes over every interaction you have with other people. Uh, First John is, is writing this this um, this book to a, uh, this letter, uh, really a sermon to a bunch of house churches who uh, have experienced this division. We've been kind of recounting some of this division, and one of John's aims is to is to give the church uh, a recasting of how to love one another after this division has happened, uh, to wound their, their, uh, to heal their wounds uh, that have been brought about by these false teachers. So if you can imagine, we've sort of tried to imagine if false teachers came to bridge and began deviating from um, other teachers and the division that would happen in our midst and how that would just destroy the community if people began following this person or that person. And so John is writing, he's trying to bring healing back to the, the house churches. Uh, and so so John identifies fear of judgment from God, this fear, as one of the main obstacles to, to, re, to healing this, this Christian community. And so in this passage, John wants to move us from, move, and move the original church from, uh, from a people of fear to a people of love. God wants to move you this morning from a person of fear, a person who's constantly holding the handkerchief over your nose in fear of being found out and fear of being judged to a person who can freely love. And so we're going to look at those things under four. You see there's four headings in your outline. Um, how is God going to do this? How is God going to do this? Well, he does it through his word, and he's going to give us, um, give, there's four headings I'd like to look at. It. God sends his son. God gives his spirit. God drives out fear. And then God sends again. God sends us again. So the first, the first thing, God sends his son. Um, love begins, how do we learn how to love? We love by beginning to see how God loves us. Uh, you see that's in, in, in uh, verse nine and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Uh, God sends his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins that we might then live through him. The father sends the son, the son lays down his life. On the cross, what does Jesus do? On the cross, Jesus enters into and takes on all the evil and sin and suffering on himself. And, and like a consuming fire, like, like, a, like a surgical knife, God removes, by, the de- by Jesus' death on the cross he, cross, he removes sin and death through his perfect sacrifice. And then opens up a new way for us. A new way of life. That, that's, God shows us his love in this. And, and that, that tells us two things about ourselves. That, that beautiful demonstration of love. Two things about, you, about us. The, the first thing it tells us uh, is that it, it shows us the extent to which we're broken. We are broken and malformed and sinful down to the core of our being. The degree of the sacrifice, right, shows us the degree of our need. Uh, and, and so I would just say, at the, if you've been in church for, for a, a while, this might be hard to, like, re-grasp, right? Maybe you, you've heard this again and again and again. So let's, let's just try to get our arms around it again. Um, because we're used to problems that are fixable. We're used to, um, or at least problems that we can imagine a solution to. We're not used to, to trouble or problems or brokenness that, that we, ha- we can't even imagine a solution to. Uh, and that, that's, that's what, our, that's what we, we mean when we talk about our sinful nature. Uh, I'm, when it comes to uh, being a homeowner, uh, here's what I've learned about, about myself as a homeowner. Um, I'm, so, I'm what you call a mystic homeowner, which is that um, every problem that occurs in a house is like, I, I see it as an invitation to mystery. I'm not sure why that's going like that. Let's just sort of, in, I just invite you family into the mystery, somehow it'll work itself out, right? I don't know why that is leaking on there. Um, I, I've learned this in contrast, I think I've mentioned to you living with, with my father-in-law, Frank, who is, who is, when it comes to home ownership, is not a mystic. Every problem has a logical engineering solution to it, if you just sort of think about it a little bit, right? Um, if you look at it and if you you deduce from the evidence you have. Uh, Sin is different, right? Sin is not a problem that we can deduce the solution to. Sin is beyond the grasp of our abilities to solve. It's also beyond our our ability to imagine solutions to it. Um, Cornelius um, Plantiga puts it like this. He says, if God's design for creation is shalom, right, wholeness, sin is blameable human vandalism an affront to their architect, architect and build, uh, builder. Now, again, let, let's just take one step deeper. It's one thing to think about vandalism as like graffiti on I-76, right? We sort of shake our heads, kids today, you know, when's the city gonna paint over that, right? That's, that's not, that's not the, um, the kind of vandalism we're talking about. It's more like the kind of van, vandalism, if somebody were to go into your home and go into your room and, and vandalize and desecrate the most precious places and things that you have. That, that precious picture of a loved one who you've lost. That, that's the kind of, and, and, and vandalize it, desecrated it. That, that's what sin is. It's a desecration of God's beautiful, beautiful world. His beautiful image-bearing people. That's what sin does. It desecrates it. It's vandalism. It's, it's desecration of what God has made. It's desecration of ourselves. It's a desecration of his creation. And so God sending his son tells us the weight of our sin, doesn't it? It tells us that. It points to that. But, but it doesn't just tell us that. It tells us something else. The second thing it tells you about, if that's the weight of our sin um, that we see in God's sacrificial love, it also tells you this. It tells you you are more sinful than you ever imagined, as Tim Keller has, has kind of patented this, right? Uh, but you're also more dearly loved and valued than you can possibly believe. Uh, The sacrifice of God to send his only son to save you is a demonstration of how much he treasures you. And and he's, God, think about this, God is uniquely positioned to evaluate how valuable you are. I I watch um, Antique Roadshow from time to time. I am a terrible evaluator of antiques. The thing that looks like a piece of junk is $10,000, right? And the person's, um, I'm, I'm not in a position to evaluate antiques. Uh, I have no training in that. I just like, if it looks nice to me, great. It looks like it's worth a lot of money. No, wrong. It's a cheap piece of crap. Um, that, that's, that's me. God is uniquely, God made you. There was no one who was more qualified, who was in, in a better position to evaluate your value. And what, what does he tell you in his sacrifice? You are more valuable than anything you can imagine. You're, you're, you're more valuable. The, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, shed his blood because of how valuable you are to him. And, and, and what that means, uh, what that means is that. and and this is important to get, because I think as Christians in particular, we get this, we easily flip this around. That means that God's love for you does not come as a result of Jesus' sacrifice. Do you know that? The Son does not convince the Father to love you. That's not how the atonement works. This, This is kind of, I've realized, I've gotten this flipped for years. I've misunderstood this. Uh, there was no sit-down in heaven where they did a cost-benefit analysis of how, what, was this a good idea? Are you worth it, right? Um, God is love, verse, tel- verse 8 tells us. So if he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. And therefore, no one has ever had to convince God to love you. No more than anybody has had to convince God to be God. God is love. God has loved you from the beginning. And so that's the origin of his displeasure with, with our vandalism. God sends his son not as a last-ditch effort, uh, an exasperated effort at the end of a long series of failed, disgruntled attempts to, to, to convince the world of something. God sends his son as the culminating, saving, beautiful act of God who has loved you from the beginning. Uh, the, verse 9 tells us, right, it's the manifestation of his love. Jesus does not convince the Father to love you. He sent the Son because he loves you. Uh, and, and it's all about because that's who he is. You see that, that quote there in the bottom from Diane Langberg speaks to God demonstrating who he is, being true to himself. God Demonstrates his words in the flesh with full integrity, so that he says. So what he says and what he lives look the same. They match his words, his process of carrying them out through actions and relationships, and the end result are all identical. So the first point, uh, and it's the longest one. So don't worry. The first point, the first thing we we must see uh, to move from being a person of Fear to a person of love is to see that God's love for us tells us the truth about who we are. It tells you the truth. You're, you're more sinful than you could dare imagine, but you're more loved and accepted than you can ever hope at the same time. And, and I hope, I just want to invite you in, into this. This is sort of the, this is the moment of conversion, right? This is, if you get these things, this is the electricity of the gospel. And for some of you old head Christians, right, who have been, who have been doing this for a while, there's something about the ongoing conversion of the church, right? It's, it's good to come back to this and be reconverted. You know what I'm saying? Not, not like you're, you're rethinking it, but but don't, don't try and go too far from these two things. This is where the gospel becomes electric to you when you get these two things. Be, I would invite you, go back to this, be reconverted by, by the love of God, right? By the contemplating your sinfulness and God's Love for you, as we sang about this morning. And if, and if you're not, maybe you're not an old head Christian here. Um, and I say that term with affection. I hope you know that. I realize that might not translate. Um, but this is, this is the gospel. This is, the, this is what's on offer. A, a, an explanation, identification of who you are, what's wrong with you, which if you're living in the 20th, 21st century, you should have a sense that there's something wrong with humanity. And, and, and here's God's response to it. This is the gospel offer. So, um, so, so getting this into our life, first step, moves us from a people of fear to a people of love. The second thing then, so God sends his son. He also then gives us his spirit. Uh, in, uh, just, just to key in on verse 13. Uh, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. Uh, the spirit in our lives is an affirmation. In other words, that we live in God and God in us. Uh, by the spirit... We are brought into the life of God. So what does that mean? Uh, So first, let me say uh, that let's not just buzz by this. This is, you know that, what's that song that says, ineffably sublime, Um, crown him with many crowns, right? I never knew what that meant, and I looked it up. Um, This is that God invites you in by his spirit into the life of God. This is ineffably sublime. In other words, it's beautiful beyond words. And so we're going to talk about what it means, but it also means that there's something beautiful and incomprehensible about the love of God that we can't quite understand. You are brought in by the Spirit into God and he in you, is what the text says. So it's okay maybe to be a little bit of a mystic homeowner about that one, <laughs> to, to not quite totally understand uh, what that, what that means. But, but we can, the scripture does help us. And one of the things that, um, one of the places that, that we get a hint uh, is, well, well, let me first say, so, so being brought into the life of God, first, first, let's just notice, it's a Trinitarian life of God, right? So you, you probably noticed in this passage, um, there, the, the Trinity is at work, right? You see the Father is sending the Son, the Son offers his life, God gives us his spirit. And by his spirit we are in him and in him and us. So, so we're brought into this eternal, infinite, three-in-one, eternally loving communion that is God Himself. Um, and, and so what does that mean? Uh, one way scripture talks about it is adoption to, to, to share life with God. Uh, you see it's hinted at in verse 7. I don't know if you notice, it's sort of, it's funny how these great mysteries, the, the, the scriptures just sort of slide in, you know. Uh, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. Right? This is a hint at that adoption. Uh, Romans 8:15 uh, puts it. Puts, Paul puts his finger on it. The Spirit which you received does not make you slaves, so that you will live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So, so we receive the Spirit. We enter into the family of God. We belong to God. So I know who I am, point one. I know now who I belong to. By the Spirit, I belong to God. I'm a part of his family. Um, And and one way in this passage that you sort of assign of belonging to God is that when you're in a family, you know the family members. That's kind of rule number one. Uh, You know them by name. It would be bad form if I showed up at uh, my in-laws, the the Christmas Eve party at my in-laws, which is an annual tradition, and I didn't know the names of my aunts and uncles and cousins by in-laws. That would not go well for me. Um, You need to to name and know who are the the elders of this family, who are those who who you honor, who are those stories that you should know um, and respect them and love them. And that's, that, that's what we hear in verse 15, 14 and 15, right? And we have seen and testified that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So we testify about the Father. And listen to this. If anyone acknowledges that the Son is the Son of God, right? So we acknowledge, we name, we know by name the family of God. Uh, and and that, that manifests, you see, in, in Romans 15. What does Paul say? He says, we, we can by the Spirit, We can call God Father. By the Spirit, we can call God Father. We can cry, Abba, Father. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God. These are the the signs that God is in you and you are in God. It's easy to skip over the notion that we call God our Father, that he has brought us into his family, But we now have the gift of belonging to God's family by the Spirit. We we can call God Father. And this is all, again, part of the gift that Christ gives us on the cross. Sinclair Ferguson says, um, as as the early church fathers delighted in saying, Christ took what was ours so that we might receive what was his. We, We receive the family of God by the Spirit. We're adopted and we belong. So, so, so so let's move on, so, so we, um, God sends the son, God gives us his spirit that adopts us into his family, and, and then God casts out, he casts out fear. Uh, when we receive this love of God, the love of the Father sending the Son, the love of the Son on the cross, the love of the spirit of adoption, something remarkable happens. Fear is driven out of our lives. Uh, and specifically in this passage, There's lots of of, sources of fear and signs of fear. This passage is specifically talking about an ultimate kind of fear uh, a fear about the value of your life before God, before God's judgment. Uh, So here's how to maybe think about this Um, a way to think about how fear takes a foothold in your life. Uh, How do you answer that question? Why be a loving person? Why do good things for people? If you're like me, the answer actually has to do with uh, because if I don't, uh, people won't like me, or my family will fall apart, or the world will fall apart, or I'll be rejected, rejected by my friends. Now, I don't know if you notice something about all of those answers. They're all based in fear, aren't they? And in fact, this is the dominant sort of narrative of, of, of the world. The only real reason to be moral in the world is based in fear. If I don't do this, then this calamity will happen. And this is how fear gets a hold of us. Uh, maybe one other way to think about it, if, 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 you, if you can quickly, just identify what is one area of your life that you know you need to change. Have you you examined the motivating desire for that change? There's, the reason I think about it is as I thought about it myself, the root instinct for change so often in my life is based in fear. I don't want to be thought of as a bad person. I don't want to be thought of as a bad husband. I don't want to be thought of as a uh, a pastor who's not with it, right? Who's not up to date on things. I want my children to like me. These are all motivated at a root by fear. Fear of what will happen if I don't. And and judgment then awaits, right, if I don't get there. The central reason you're trying to get um, your nose back on is fear that you'll be exposed, that, that you don't have one. And so the, the Christian, the Christian has, has the, because of what God has done on the cross, because of the sacrifice of the Son, because of the gift of the Spirit, has, has the power to, to see fear, this fear, expelled from their life. Uh, Scott Saul says, uh, says that on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that our sins deserve, thereby moving our judgment day from the future to the past. In Jesus, we are already forgiven, so we have nothing left to fear your judgment day has been moved from the future to the past. As the love of God begins to work in us and we begin to demonstrate the family characteristics of God in our lives, what this tells us is that day by day, you're being perfected. And how that looks is that the fear of punishment and the fear of judgment is cast out of your life. Little by little, day by day, notice that perfecting language. Right? Not all at once, little by little, day by day, Fear is cast out of your life. Fear recedes and confidence in living before the God of the universe grows. Uh, The more that we accept what has been done for us on the cross and and what Jesus tells us about us in his sacrifice, the more we grow in walking in the spirit of adoption. Fear is cast out. Um, So here's, if you're having trouble kind of getting your arms around that, here's one, here's one sign, here's one way this, this manifests in your, in, your, in your walk with God. Um, there's, there's a, a personal, you, you, you experience and practice personal and communal humble confession. You, you have a practice and, and, a, and a daily going to confession, both, both personally by yourself and with the community of, of God. Because the, the, Spirit, the Spirit cries out in prayer, Abba, Father. And so when we're able to go before God confidently confessing our sins, then, then we know we're not living out of fear anymore. Right? Fear is being expelled from our life. Uh, this, is, uh, th- this is what Hannah Anderson is talking about in the, the quote there, um, In her book, Humble Roots, she she writes, humility teaches us that God is actively redeeming the world. And because he is, we can experience the relief of confessing our brokenness. Humility teaches us to find rest in confession. Rest from the need to hide, the need to be perfect. We rest by saying both to God and others, I am not enough, I need help. And ultimately, the humility that leads us to confess our brokenness, both within and without, also frees us to grieve it, and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Uh, maybe put another way, fear is cast when you when you notice fear being cast out in your life, you're you're quicker to confession and repentance than you are to judgment. So um, so God casts out fear, and finally, um, God sends. We're moving, we're being moved from a person of fear to a person of love. Um, and I began by asking you this question, uh, and we'll close with this. Uh, what obstacles do you face to become a person of love? Um, and what I imagine, if you're like me, is that you began probably thinking about your lack of ability. Um, perhaps there's some area or two that you know you need to grow in and sharpen in. Um, perhaps you, you thought of another person who was an obstacle to you uh, being a person of love. Uh, okay, maybe I'm the only one who, th- who thought of. Another person <laughs> getting in my in the way of my love. Um, but scripture doesn't begin with a technique or a method. Um, uh, b- scripture doesn't tell us how to hold a handkerchief over our nose a little bit more tightly, a little bit more widely to cover our shame. Uh, we love, verse 19, because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And we can read that a little bit like Aesop's fables sometimes, right? A lesson from Aesop's fables. Uh, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Uh, we're prone to sort of dismiss, I think, if we've heard it too often, the world-altering love uh, of God, and, and we change it into sort of a moralistic imperative uh, that drives us back into fear. Uh, but but let, me, let me just invite you in to see the weight of this. Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, once said that God is not an uncle, he's an earthquake. God is not an uncle, he's an earthquake. Uh, and no, no shade on uncles here, I happen to be an uncle. Um, but what is he getting at? God is not God is not your little moralistic, um, going to tell you some good things, uncle, who just sort of wants to, you know, give you a little punch in the shoulder and say, you know, get at him, kid, or I don't even know. Is that what uncle say? <laughs> Something like that? No, no. God is an earthquake. God, God, The love of God for you is it's more like a seismic activity that shakes the ground under your feet uh, as it re, as it redeems all of creation. And so, so the, the death of God on the cross, um, the, our union with him by his spirit are not something um, only done for us, but they're something that reverberates in our lives and sends us. Something that literally moves us out of standing still. And, and not, not in the sense that we get these good things from God, okay, I got love, I've got a little bit of forgiveness, I've got assurance, uh, let me pu- put them in my, my Christian backpack and now I'm gonna go sort of forge my way into the world, right? Not in that sense at all. You don't separate the tremors from the earthquake, right? We, we go, we go in love with God, in Christ, because he's in us and we're in him. We go to love, we go to love our brothers and sisters as John exhorts us to, in the way that we have been loved. And so, um, so just by way of closing, we love then in in the way that God loved us. And and there are just three quick things that I want to say about what that looks like then in our community, to love one another. Three quick things. Um, We love in the way God loves us because God is an earthquake and his love sends his tremors through us. Uh, First, we love others in a way that God loves us by telling the truth to one another about who we are. Uh, here's here's one way to apply this. Invite somebody in the next week to speak truthfully into your life. Ask somebody to give you, both, both good and bad, by the way. It doesn't have to be uh, <laughs> pain, uh, all bad, right? What, what do you, invite somebody to encourage you and invite somebody to point out where you need to grow. This is how we grow in love for one another as a community. This is the way that God loves us. Secondly, um, we love each other, not based on merit or on association or what we like about each other. We love each other, not based on our worth, but because God has brought each other into our midst, because of who you are as a person. So, So how do I apply that? Go and pursue, find somebody to have coffee with who is different from you. I know that seems sort of low stakes, But this is the job of the church, to be a, we intentionally look that, I don't just look for people who are like me, who think like me, who vote like me, who live like me, who look like me. I pursue intentionally, just as Jesus did, people who are unlike me. Someone in your life, you you need to be with and incarnating and loving somebody who's different from you in an intentional way. And, um, and lastly, lastly, what does this look like in our community? Um, worship that makes no sense. <laughs> worship that is utterly um, devoted to the beauty of Jesus. Uh, this is the last image I want to leave you with, and the, the worship team can come forward. What do I mean by that? Um, do you remember the woman, uh, the, the broken woman who came and, and, uh, and wept at Jesus' feet? and dried her tears with her hair, uh, a, a, a woman who was a prostitute and given her life to sin. Here's a picture of a woman who has, had, who has had fear cast out of her life. And all she knows is to come before the beautiful love of Jesus and worship him, worship him in a way that makes no sense to anybody else. And so, so that's the last call, right? How to become a person of, from fear to love Worship at the feet of Jesus. If you catch nothing, all this this, this firestorm of this passage, which is like a, a tornado, just be brought back to this. Come and worship at the feet of Jesus. Put yourself in contact. Expose yourself. Take the handkerchief off your nose. Stop trying to hide and come before Jesus in worship. And that will move you. That will demonstrate in your life. That will move you from a person of fear to a person of love. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.